Thank you so very much to both of our praise teams this morning. It's a delight to have one from the early service and one from the second service ministering to us today. And I know the praise teams are not surprised to hear that we have received a text message from Julie this morning that she is thinking about us and praying for us, and she is continuing along the path of healing after her surgery. I know we all miss her and her family very much this morning, and I know you are continuing to pray for her, that God will restore her strength and her health and return her to us in the weeks that are yet to come. Well, one of our most persistent and enduring questions is this question on the screen. Why do God's people suffer? Uh, Billy Graham once said that if he had a dollar for every time he had been asked this question, he would be a very rich man. And I want you to notice uh, what he said uh, about this. He said, I've been asked on hundreds of times in my life, Why God allows tragedy and suffering? I have to confess that I really do not know the answer totally, even to my own satisfaction. I have to accept by faith that God is sovereign and He is a God of love and mercy and compassion in the midst of suffering. All God's people said, Amen. But you know, when we are suffering, it's very hard for us to believe that God is a God of love, mercy, and compassion. An NMU student once said to me, if there is a God, why are there so many suicides? And I discovered that a very dear relative had committed suicide of this student. And struggling with the pain of the loss of that dear relative caused doubts about God. How do we know this God that we believe is loving, merciful, and compassionate in those times when our lives are filled with overwhelming and unbearable pain? Well, the answer, one of the answers that the Bible gives to us has to do with another work of the Holy Spirit. This morning, as we return to Romans chapter 8, and we are learning about what the Holy Spirit does for us, one of the things that we learn is that He assures us of future glory. We're going to see in this passage, towards the end of the passage, that the Holy Spirit is called the first fruits. He's called the first fruits. Now, every farmer knows what that means. When the harvest time comes, the first fruits that ripen are that signal that there's going to be a good harvest. And those first fruits, though they are very small, are like a down payment. They're like a guarantee that a glorious harvest is yet to come for the farmer. And he rejoices in the first fruits. Now think about this. The Holy Spirit sent into the heart of every Christian as the first fruits. Letting us know future glory is coming. This morning, what does future glory teach us? Well, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And this morning, we're going to seek the answer to that question. If you'd like to find the chair Bible in front of you, turn to page 1122. And there you will find Romans chapter 8. And let's take a moment, shall we, and just pray together and ask the Lord to be our teacher. Father, we are your suffering people. 
There's much suffering in this very room today. There's certainly lots of suffering outside of it. And we're so thankful that one of the things the Holy Spirit was sent to do by His work in our life is say a glorious future harvest is yet to come. And that sustains us on this weary journey. Oh, we love you, Lord, today for teaching us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's look at verse 18 as we begin, shall we? Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, here's the very first thing that future glory teaches us. It teaches us that as a Christian, we can affirm this, suffering is very light. It is really very light. What this means is that suffering is insignificant. It is of little consequence. Now, this is shocking to us, isn't it? This is probably the thing we did not anticipate we would see. Uh, Because suffering is devastating, it is often overwhelming, and it can be life-threatening. I think of uh, a woman many, many years ago at a very serious surgery at the University of Michigan Hospital. And Ellen and I, we knew the surgery was so serious, we went down to be with her. She made it through the surgery, and everything seemed fine, and then one week later she had three strokes. She lingered in Ann Arbor for a month, finally came home to a hospital at home where paralyzed, unable to talk or move, she died. And I will never remember one of the last things she said to me. Lying in that bed, hardly able to uh, formulate words, she said to me, Why? Why? She was devastated. This verse does not mean suffering is not hard to take. That's not what it means. But what it means is suffering is light compared to something else in the verse, and that is glory. Glory. You see, what this is, is the perspective of faith. Non-believers see suffering only in the light of the present, And therefore, when tragedy strikes, what is lived for, for the non-believer, is now gone. You may recall a well-known movie that was uh, uh, produced and starred in by Woody Allen. And in the movie, uh, called Annie Hall, his character says this, Life is full of loneliness and misery and suffering and unhappiness, and it's all over much too quickly. And isn't that how the non-believer views suffering? It is only viewed pessimistically as harsh and crushing. But what this verse says to us is believers can see suffering in the light of the future. What we understand is this life is only a small part of the picture. We are living for eternity. We're living for God's promises. And so we can see suffering optimistically as a tiny part, just a tiny part of a very, very huge picture. 
Now, this is why Paul can say what he says in verse 18. Notice in verse 18, he says, Our sufferings are not worthy of comparing to the glory that is to come. The word not worthy there is a measuring term. And what it referred to was a heavy object on a scale that was heavy enough to tip the balance of the scale. That's what he's saying here. Now, I want to put up a a picture this morning that um, you may have seen before. But as soon as you see it, you have an immediate reaction to the picture. And there it is. Now, when you see this image, what do you immediately realize? It's an optical illusion, isn't it? I mean, you know it's an optical illusion. Because the two rocks on one side of the teeter-totter are far heavier than the feather on the other side, and clearly the rocks, right, would tip the balance. You can't be fooled by this, can you? I can't pull the weight over your eyes this morning, the wool over your eyes. But you know what? We often are fooled in life, aren't we? We often are fooled in life. See, we cannot see the greater weight of glory. It is hidden from us. And because we cannot see the greater weight of glory, the suffering seems greater than the glory to come. Brothers and sisters, that's an illusion. That is an illusion. The suffering is like this feather. The greater weight of glory are like the rocks on the other side. But we're living in a time when we have to take this by faith because we cannot see past the illusion. Some of you know that C.S. Lewis preached a sermon entitled, The Weight of Glory. And in that sermon, he said, what is glory going to be like for Christians when we finally experience it when Jesus comes And there was a book that was written out of that sermon, and here's what C.S. Lewis, in that sermon that was published, said the Bible teaches is the glory that is coming. We will be with Christ. We will be like Him. We will have glory, a reference to luminosity in God's presence. Whenever God appeared, there was luminous light. We'll share in that. We will be feasted. It will be a time of celebrating and no more pain. And we will have official positions in the universe. That's the glory the Bible says is coming. How many of you think this will tip the scales? How many of you think this will be greater than any suffering we have ever known? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so by faith we understand the suffering is light compared to the glory. Now here's the second thing that future glory teaches us. Future glory teaches us that suffering will not 
last. It won't last. Look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now Paul here is telling us then very emphatically that suffering is only temporary. It only lasts a short while. And what he does is he uses uh, nature or creation to illustrate his point. Creation is going to participate in the glory of God's children. In the future, things are going to be drastically different than they are now. And the natural world looks forward to that great time of anticipation with eager anticipation. It's interesting, there is a cluster of terms in verse 19 that is very expressive. My translation says, creation waits with eager longing. Do you know what it literally reads? Let me read it for you literally. The creation eagerly expecting awaits eagerly. That's the literal reading. The creation eagerly expecting awaits eagerly and it carries the idea of craning the neck. Of stretching the head forward to, to, to see it. Uh, J.B. Phillips translates verse 19 this way, The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. Am I on tiptoe, craning my neck as much as I can? That's the idea. Creation longs for the day when suffering will be over. Now the reason for that, according to Paul in these verses, is God put a curse on this earth because of man's sin. By the way, how do you explain that to somebody who says, if there is a God, why are there so many suicides? How do you help them see there's a curse that man's sin has brought about? This is clearly what the Apostle Paul is referring to. What occurred in Genesis 3 after the fall, when God brought the curse because of the rebellion of mankind. Look what God said to Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. And you will eat bread till you return to the ground. You know what our text here defines this as in verse 20? Being subjected to futility. Futility here in verse 20 suggests frustration. So what it's telling us is the earth is frustrated. 
Frustration is the inability to obtain one's goals, so the curse has barred nature from the fullness of fertility and harmony. God's plan was that the earth would multiply and be fruitful. Instead, according to verse 21, the creation is afflicted with bondage to corruption because of man's sin. We all know how true this is. Nature is enslaved to decay, deterioration, and to death. And we see it all the time. Here's a very tragic image of it. These are dead reindeer in central Norway. They were killed by a lightning storm. And this happens all the time. Except this particular storm was a very great and enhanced storm. And there are 300 dead reindeer. Their bodies now bloating rotting and decaying. Or, here's another image, and we know this is a constant thing. This is a horse who died of starvation over a very difficult winter. You know how agonizing it is to die of starvation? What a horrible way for an animal to die. And these images are the evidence of the curse killing animals. Did you notice, so frustrated is nature that it actually laments its condition. Look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Earth groans like a woman in labor. Do you see this here? This is like groaning like a woman in labor. Think about what this means. Floods, hurricanes, droughts, tornadoes, blights, avalanches, and earthquakes. They're all the birth pangs of nature. It wants desperately to be delivered. And the Bible says, one day it will be. Back in verse 20, It says, God cursed the earth with a promise of hope. And notice that hope is declared in verse 21. The creation itself will one day be set free. Now what does the Bible teach us? Following the second coming of Christ, the creation is going to be renewed. The groaning creation is going to be a glorious creation. The curse will be removed. Death and decay will be gone. Natural disaster will cease. Nature will then be free to produce as it was designed to produce. It will be free from pestilence and decay. And every believer in Jesus Christ will one day return with the Savior to see that day, live in that day, and experience that. Day. Aren't you longing for it with me? Aren't you? 
In the providence of God this very morning, I read Isaiah chapter 11 that talks about the day that's coming. You know what it says? The lion will, or the, the, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. It says the bear and the oxen will graze together. How many of you have ever seen that? It says the lion will eat straw like an ox. And then it says a little child will put its hand on the cobra's hole and be totally unafraid. That's the day creation is looking forward to. And this suffering that we are enduring, what you're in right now, it will not last. Look at the third thing that future glory teaches us. Number three. Suffering creates a longing. Longing. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. I told you that phrase was coming. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now I want you to notice what Paul is doing here. He moves from the illustration in nature to the application to believers like you and me. And he says that we groan also. And the reason we groan is for two reasons. Number one, we are longing for the day of freedom. He says we groan inwardly as we wait for that day. Now, I've been told that one of the worst pains imaginable is a woman's labor pains when she is going to deliver a child. Um, I understand that if our children have no other reason to be grateful to us, that's the reason to be eternally grateful. And I'm also told that the closest a man ever comes to labor pain is having kidney stones. And if you're a man here today who's had kidney stones, you can begin to understand labor pain. So what we're being told here is this. Groaning is the reaction to pain. It is like the labor pains of living in a fallen world. I've had three funerals for children. I told one of my uh, friends who I I know from Ravana, uh, Michigan, that two of those funerals I had in the town of Ravana. The other one was in Muskegon in my church. And that particular one in my church was a funeral for a six-year-old girl who had been accidentally killed by her own father. It was horrendous, horrendous. 
Um, you know what that girl's uncle said to me? He said his sister's wailing over her lost child was the worst sound he has ever heard. And the uncle said to me after that first night of being with his sister as she wailed over her lost child killed accidentally by her own husband, the uncle said to me, I hope I never hear that kind of wailing ever again. You know what that groaning tells us? We are living in a sin-cursed world. It's a world of selfishness, violence, inhumanity, falsehood, and death. And why does God allow that kind of pain in this world? Listen carefully. It is so that we will not be comfortable in a sin-cursed world. That's one of the reasons God allows that kind of suffering. Is so we will recognize something is wrong. Our sin has caused what is wrong. And we will long for another world that we were intended for, that Jesus came and died and rose to provide for us. Our very pain points us to Jesus and the freedom He alone can bring. And then notice a second reason why we groan. We long for our future. We long for our future. You see, verse 24 draws the parallel between creation and us. As nature was cursed in hope, so verse 24 says, believers are saved in hope. We are saved in hope, it says. And as nature is on tiptoe waiting for deliverance, so are we. Did you notice the same word for nature's waiting is used for our waiting. Our groaning is longing for our future. If I asked you a very strange question this morning, you might look at me and say, boy, that's a strange question. And if I said to you, did you get all your salvation when you were saved? You'd say, that's a dumb question. Of course I got all my salvation when I was saved. Not such a dumb question. Think again. Look at verse 23. It says, we only have the first fruits of the Spirit. Did you see that? First fruits is the beginning. The down payment. There's more to come. And verse 23 says, we're still waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Redemption includes the liberating of the soul, but also the body. We will be completely saved when we have our new bodies at Christ's return. Yes, we received justification. Yes, we're experiencing sanctification, but glorification 
is yet to come. And how can we know it will come? The Holy Spirit is the first fruits. He's the guarantee of future glory. Is the Holy Spirit in your life? Have you been saved? Has He come in? Is He working? That's the guarantee. The full harvest is one day coming. Earlier in the mention sermon, I mentioned both Billy Graham and C.S. Lewis. And as I come to the conclusion of what God is teaching us, I want to bring them back in at this point again. Because I think what they said, independent of one another, ties it all together. And so let's begin again with Billy Graham and Notice what he said. When disappointment or tragedy or suffering strikes, we have a decision to make. Will we turn away from God? Or will we turn toward Him? Which road will we take? One road leads to doubt, anger, bitterness, fear, hopelessness, and despair. The other leads to hope, Comfort, peace, strength, and joy. And why should we turn towards God rather than away from Him? Well, look at what C.S. Lewis says. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. How many think future glory will more than make up for temporary suffering? Of course it will. Of course it will. And it will so work its way back as it were that even the agony you're experiencing right now will one day be turned into glory. Let's bow together, shall we? And let's thank the Lord. As her heads are bowed and her eyes are closed, if you're not a Christian here today, you can't experience anything of what the Bible is saying. You can't enter into it. You can't appreciate it. You can't find hope and joy and meaning and purpose in the difficult things you go through. The only way
you can understand that your suffering is really very light. It will not last. And it creates a longing within you for the glory that God made us for. Is if you come to Christ and trust Him by an act of faith. The Holy Spirit then comes into your life as the first fruits. And as He works within you, transforming you from the inside out, He makes you fully aware. The best is yet to come. Would you come to Him now? Come to the Savior now. Repent of your way of life. Cast yourself upon His mercy. Trust Him to save you and make you a child of God. And then for us believers, have we forgotten We're living by faith. Have we become discouraged and defeated and hopeless because we have forgotten we walk by faith, not by sight? Let the Spirit of God renew our faith in the promises of His Word. Look above the horizon of your own pain. And find God's purpose and His comfort and His love. He wrote these words that you might trust Him. Blessed Lord, thank You today that we have the confidence that the Spirit of God is amongst us. And as He said to the disciples, so Jesus says to us, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will take the things that are Mine and He will show them unto you. He will illumine our minds so that we can understand the sacred Scriptures. And by understanding them, become wise for salvation, which is in Jesus Christ. And then for living. For all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. That the man or woman of God might become thoroughly mature and equipped unto every good work. Spirit of God, do your work today in all of our hearts. For Jesus' sake.